Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we'll produce. If you want to hear more Enigma, you can help us for free. Simply share Enigma on your Facebook or Twitter feeds. We are at Enigma underscore podcast on Twitter and Enigma podcast on Facebook. We'll share your post and give you a shout out. You can also take the time to write a review on iTunes and recommend Enigma to a friend you think would enjoy it. Now, on to the show. It was just after five in the morning, on July 5th, when they heard a knock at the door. The sun was just glimmering below the horizon, but the Applebecks were already up. In rural Wisconsin, most folks were awake and starting their day, even at this early hour. At the door was one of their neighbors, and he was asking if he could use the phone. Initially, Miss Applebeck refused. She knew the man and his family as they had a bit of a reputation around town. And although she never had an issue with them, she knew they had a phone of their own and told him so. He calmly insisted on using theirs, saying the line had been cut. Arvin, Miss Applebeck's husband, was summoned and took the man inside. He paused at the phone until Arvin asked him what the matter was. He didn't know the number for the sheriff's office. Arvin dialed then handed the receiver back to him. They listened as he told the sheriff's office that he needed help. It seemed there had been some trouble over at the Kuntz's house. Kenny said he'd arrived home not long ago when he noticed something wasn't right. He didn't live in the house with the rest of the family, but from his trailer in the yard, he heard the radio and saw the kitchen light on. He went to the house and found them. Of the six members of the Kuntz family that lived on the property, three were dead in the house, two were missing, and then here was Kenny. What transpired that night in 1987 was utterly tragic, but the events that unfolded after and the details that emerged painted a picture much darker and more depressing than anyone expected. On this episode, we'll take you through the twists and turns of the Kuntz family murders in the small town of Athens, Wisconsin. From the brutal to the bizarre, This case is a scatter of puzzle pieces that refuse to fit together. And even though the whole picture is not clear to us, what we do see is something wholly unsettling. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. When Sheriff's Deputy Stephen Steppard arrived at the Kunst home, he saw a small group of men standing in front of the house talking. There were three ambulance attendants, and the fourth man, he would learn, was Kenny Kuntz. Their lack of activity all but confirming the worst, that none of the victims were still alive. The deputy spoke to the ambulance attendants, and they concurred with Kenny's report. Just as he had said, there were three bodies in the house and two people were now missing. Sheriff Steppert toured the scene for himself. Before even entering the home, he came upon the first victim, 
Marie Kuntz. She appeared to be sitting on the porch steps, slumped over. She had been shot in the back of the head. Inside was the kitchen, and on the floor was the next victim, Randy Kuntz. He was also shot in the back of the head. In the living room, against a wall, there was a bed with another body on it. This was Clarence Kuntz. He, too, had a similar gunshot wound. All of them appeared to have been shot with a 22 caliber gun. When the sheriff's detectives arrived a little while later, they made the first big discovery. There was a fourth body in the house. In the back, with the entry partially blocked, this possibly explaining why it had been overlooked previously, they found Irene Kuntz sitting in a chair, also dead from a gunshot to the back of the head. Now that left Helen as the only one missing, and as Kenny would soon tell them, so was Randy's car. In the days and weeks that followed, everyone tried to put the facts together and figure out what happened that night. Like good policemen, they relied on their knowledge and understanding of similar crimes. They tried to find patterns and assemble the pieces, but there seemed to be no rhyme or reason to any of it at all. The information and evidence piled up, but still, the case made no sense. And as police would soon discover, nothing about the Kuntz family and the events surrounding that night would prove anything close to ordinary. That morning, when Detective Sergeants Honish and Woodward investigated the scene, they found a lot more than the bodies. The small four-room house was a nightmare. It had no running water and was heated by the same wood stove used for cooking. Though they did have electricity, the appliances were rather limited, with a few exceptions being a television and a VHS player. The family appeared to be hoarders, holding on to things most others would have thrown away or otherwise gotten rid of. So much so that the place was overflowing with stuff, most surfaces piled with papers or belongings. While their life seemed simple and poverty-stricken, one of the most prevalent items found around the house was money. Wads of bills and jars filled with currency were found all over the house. Old purses and wallets with cash and coins were also found. The total of all this money came to a whopping $20,418. No small sum at all, and some of it was just left around sitting out in the open. Also, in the house were old pieces of mail and magazines, bills and statements. This was not that unusual, but there were other things. Otter things. Bags and bags of fireworks. NRA magazines and guns, some of which were 22 caliber. Oddest of all was the collection of pornography. Magazines and videotapes strewn about, openly sitting on counters and tables. Knowing more about the Kuntz family only makes many of these findings even stranger. This was not a young family. And in fact, four of them were siblings. 
The oldest, Irene, was 81. Her brother Clarence was 76. The other two sisters were Marie, 72, and Helen, 70. Kenny and Randy, they were Helen's children, age 55 and 30, respectively. Of them, Kenny was the only one with a job, and as the years got on, he was the only one who left the house regularly. Clarence, along with Helen and Randy, would go out from time to time, and the very night of the murders, the mother and son had gone out to see the fireworks in town. Helen and Randy were very close. So close, in fact, that they shared a bed. It's unclear how widely known this fact was, but there was already plenty of whispers around town about the family. In 1932, when Helen was 15 years old, she became pregnant with Kenny. She told police she was raped by her neighbor. There was a trial and the man was convicted. But even then, people had their suspicions. There were rumors about what type of relationship Clarence had with his sisters. And over the course of the investigation of the murders, the idea came up again. Just who was the father of Kenny? Who was Randy's father? Many, including Kenny himself, thought that his uncle Clarence was their real dad. These personal and intimate details of the Coons family's lives are not brought up without reason. When a family is not just murdered, but executed in their own home, every effort must be made to find out who did it. And one of the first persons of interest in the case was the one family member unaccounted for. And could she have been the one responsible for murdering four members of her own family? The theory that Helen was involved exploded in town when a startling discovery was made by reporter Marianne Roca of the Associated Press. She had interviewed the owner of a local hardware store where Helen had purchased 22 caliber ammunition just four weeks before the murders. This alone was not all that important as many people in the area owned guns, and it was said she was buying it for Randy to shoot blackbirds, another commonality in the area. It is what she said to the shopkeeper after that was really what struck people, especially the police. As Helen was talking about her family, she grew angry and stated that she didn't like them, quote, watching porno movies all the time on the VCR. She went on, saying that she was so angry, she could, quote, kill them all. So did she? They needed to find Helen, that much was certain. But until they did, they had to continue to explore all possible theories. As we've said, the Kunzes didn't get out much, and in fact, never had many visitors at the house. Most people who saw them at home were delivery men, but there was one other visitor that was brought up that piqued the interest of the detectives. Kenny told them about a group of four young men that stopped because they were interested in buying a used car that was parked in the yard. The interaction was harmless and Kenny sold them a car for a reasonable price. The men followed him inside as he looked for the title. Then they left. That was almost exactly three years before the murders. But it wasn't the last time the Kunzes saw one of the young men. Kenny also told the detectives that one of them came back, this time just a month or so before the murders. K-9 
Kenny wasn't home, but Helen spoke to the man. He wanted to buy another used car, but Helen said he would have to wait to talk to Kenny about it. And although Kenny mentioned this visit to the detectives just a couple weeks after the murders, it would be months before the man was investigated. The detectives had a good list of solid leads, but nothing, including the forensics at the crime scene, turned up any solid proof. Helen was still missing, and so was the murder weapon. They had no direct witnesses, only those that helped build a time frame for when the crime must have happened. And the only useful prints of any kind were actually not fingerprints, but tire prints. The missing car, Randy's car, was actually found that same morning that Kenny had found the family dead in the house. The car was back in a farm field where Kenny had worked earlier that previous evening, only it wasn't there when he had left. Forensics found three sets of tire prints in the soft ground. One belonged to Kenny's vehicle, which came and went. Another belonged to Randy's, which was still there. And then there was a third set of mystery prints. The detectives felt that whoever's car this was, was possibly the killer, or at the very least, had to know something. The detectives were able to track down what type of tire left the prints and checked who in town had purchased those specific ones. It turned up a short list, and there was one familiar name on it. It was the same name they came across that had visited the Coons family to purchase an old vehicle from them. The young man's name was Chris Jacobs. Chris was a bit of a troublemaker in town. He had had numerous run-ins with the law in his young life, including a few for theft in the months following the Coons murders. Now, pieces were coming together, the picture of that night becoming clearer. The evidence was piling up, and much of it seemed to point right to Chris Jacobs. Not only were the tires a match, but in the search of the Jacobs' home that following January, they found a number of 22 caliber guns and ammunition. In fact, ballistics were able to match 29 casings from his room to those found at the crime scene. Chris was also known to have owned a Remington Nylon 66, the very same gun experts believed was the murder weapon. But in all their searches, they never found it. On top of all that, Chris lied about his alibi for the night of the murder. When police spoke with him, he said he was at the fireworks with a girl he was dating. It turned out after speaking with the girl, the two hadn't started dating until months later. So if Chris wasn't with her, where was he? And why lie about it? All of this was still not enough for detectives. Nothing put the gun in his hands and pulling the trigger. They needed more. And it didn't take long until they got it. It was March 30th when they found Helen's body in the thawing ice. She too had been shot in the back of the head. Nearly nine months after the murders, the full impact of the events were realized. With the discovery of his mother's body, it was official. All of Kenny Kuntz's family was dead and still no one had been arrested for the crimes. When they found Helen's body, it all but closed the door on the theory that she was the one behind the murders. 
A case was made that perhaps she committed suicide, but at a later trial, experts dismissed this idea. Also, there was a lack of a weapon. No gun was found around her, as it almost certainly would have been if she shot herself. With all of this, the attention was now squarely on Chris Jacobs. After gathering what they could on him, Chris Jacobs was arrested and stood trial for five counts of murder. It looked like Chris was guilty, but not everyone was so certain. As his defense pointed out, how was there no physical evidence of him in the house or of Helen in his car? If he committed this crime to rob them, why was there so much money left sitting around? Experts were also brought in to show that the tire tracks that were claimed to be from Chris's vehicle could not be considered a 100% match. It was all crumbling for the prosecution and the final dagger was from Chris's mother. In her testimony at trial, she said Chris was home just before midnight the night of the murders. This flew in the face of the firm time frame established within which the crime must have been committed. Then after a short deliberation, the jury let Chris Jacobs walk free, acquitted on all charges. So if it wasn't Chris, and who was it? It's important to note that the sheriff's office always held the idea that Chris was only one of the people there that committed the crimes. Even the charges he was brought up on indicated that Chris was charged with five counts of being party to murder, not first-degree murder. They didn't know if he pulled the trigger on all or any of them, but they believed he was there. Perhaps his role was smaller than they thought, and that was why the evidence wasn't as strong as it needed to be. Unfortunately, they had no other suspects. There was another theory presented by the defense. It was that it was a drug deal gone wrong. Witnesses stated that Randy sold drugs, and some speculated Kenny was in on it. It was known that Kenny had a lot of money with him the night of the murders. Perhaps he was late getting home, and the suspected drug suppliers held the family hostage waiting for him. Only when he didn't show, they executed them. There was one witness to support this theory. It was a woman who drove by the house and was followed with a spotlight on her. Then when she passed the driveway, they turned. The witness's car closely resembled Kenny's. Some think Kenny knew more than he really let on, After all, he had no one to corroborate his alibi, and he was the only family member left alive. Maybe he was covering up for his mother, Helen. Other people point to the big questions never answered in this case. What was the motive? If it was robbery, why not take all the money sitting around? Where was the murder weapon? Why was Randy's car in the garden? And why was Helen taken somewhere else just to be killed like the others? There were and still are so many unanswered questions, pieces to a puzzle that don't seem to fit. After Chris's acquittal, it was back to the drawing board for the sheriff's office. But in the years that followed, not much else was discovered. 
The next big break came when a woman came forward saying a man confessed to her that he had committed the crimes. Her name was Stacy Weiss, and the man who confessed was her ex-boyfriend, Chris Jacobs. With this new information, the prosecution scrambled. They could not charge Chris with the murder again, but they did find something else to charge him with. On July 3, 1993, Chris was arrested for the kidnapping and false imprisonment of Helen Kuntz. It was four years after the murders. This was just one day before the statute of limitations was set to run out on those types of charges. After numerous delays and appeals in August of 1998, Chris Jacobs was convicted and given a maximum sentence of 31 years. This hefty sentence implying he was guilty of the murders as well, though his new trial provided very little new evidence with the exception of Miss Weiss's testimony. As a result, the sheriff's office considers the Coons case closed. Others aren't so sure. Was Chris the killer after all? And did justice finally catch up with him? Or was he just one that happened to fit the bill? Chris still claims his innocence to this day, saying that he never confessed and the story was made up by his ex just to get back at him. And perhaps it was, seeing that Miss Weiss had some legal troubles of her own at the time and after her testimony, those charges were dropped. Could the killer still be out there and an innocent man be sitting in jail? We may never know. There is still one more piece to the twisted puzzle of the Kuntz family that may or may not have played a part in what happened that July night. It goes back a generation to the four siblings' parents, Ignatz and Anna Kuntz. It was in the year 1905 in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is the setting of another well-known murder case, one that was featured in the hit Netflix series, Making a Murderer. Before the Coons family murders, before Helen gave birth to Randy or Kenny, before even Helen, Marie, or Clarence were born, Ignatz and Anna Coons lived with his mother, Mary. Ignatz was working up north for the winter, leaving Anna at home with his mother and brother Wenzel. Mary was 70 and her health was starting to fail her, Anna took care of her as best she could, but on an early December day, she went to a neighbor's house for a few hours, leaving her alone with Wenzel. When she returned home that evening, what she found was horrific. Mary had been hit over the head with a flat iron, and she lay in her bed dead. Wenzel confessed to the crime and went without resistance. He seemed to show no emotion regarding the crime at all. Though the family had known he had been becoming more mentally unstable, he had never been violent. Wenzel pled insanity and was found to be of unsound mind and was entered into a mental hospital. It is also worth noting another fact that came about in the questioning following Mary's murder. Wenzel and Ignatz were not the only children of Mary. In fact, there were three other brothers and a sister, one of whom was also committed to a mental hospital. 
perhaps this dark past has nothing to do with what happened that night in 1987. Or perhaps that history of mental illness was passed on to the following generations of the Kuntz family. Could that explain the unconventional lifestyle of the four elder siblings and their two grown children? Could one of them have been mentally unstable? And like it did in the past, could it have led to murder? Maybe Helen did kill them all like she said she wanted to. While it appeared unlikely, based on her injuries and how she was found, it was not impossible that the wound that killed her could have been self-inflicted. Maybe she had help from her son Kenny, or Kenny was the one that snapped and committed the crimes all by himself. After all, he was the only one left alive. Though these theories seem just as unlikely now as they did back then, perhaps in a case as odd as this one, it would be wrong to dismiss any idea completely. For Chris Jacobs, if he is not the killer, he would be yet another victim of the crimes committed that July night. But one day, he will walk free having served his time, rightfully so or not. And that day is sooner than you think. Chris Jacobs is scheduled for release from prison in February of 2020. Like the ramshackled belongings of the Kuntz house, collected over years and years, the pieces of this case make just as little sense. We try our best to take what pieces we have and fit them together. We try to make sense of these terrible tragedies, but sometimes we can't. We like to think we're close to the truth and that if Chris wasn't the killer, it is one of these other suspects. But what if we're not close at all? And maybe we never were. What if, in all that mess, all the facts, something was missed? And now, 32 years later, it's still sitting there, waiting to be found. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enigma. If you'd like more information on this story, you can check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We've got photos of the Kuntz family house and links to our sources there. Thanks so much to At One Blind Mike, who left us a really inspiring review on iTunes. Also, a big thanks to Terracovo9 and Heather Lee137 for their reviews. Your reviews are what inspire us to keep making episodes, and it helps others find the show. It's free, and it's a big help to us. Sincerely. Thank you. We'd also love it if you'd recommend Enigma to a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. Enigma is on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe. We are also happy to announce that we are now on Spotify. This episode of Enigma was written by Corey Grainer and produced by Alex Holscher. Original artwork by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is 
Enigma.